This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Iheyes Wuhib in Washington. Here's what's coming up on African News Tonight. He says it is the military's conviction that we will soon see a true civilian government established in Sudan that will fulfill the aspirations and ambitions of the Sudanese people towards a free, just and peaceful state. That's the translator for Sudan's Army Chief General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan on the military's vow to place itself under a civilian government. Details coming up. Also, China's new foreign minister is starting a week-long trip to Africa today. Bus crashes in Senegal and Uganda kill 60 people. And 46 Ivory Coast soldiers arrived home after being held in Mali for six months. These stories and more on African News tonight. We start with our top story. Nigerian security forces are searching for more than 30 train passengers who gunmen abducted over the weekend after attacking a train station in southern Edo state. The passengers were waiting to board an evening train when gunmen began shooting, causing injuries. It is the first such attack in southern Nigeria and raises security concerns ahead of February's election. Timothy Obiezu reports from Abuja, Nigeria. The Edo State Police said in a statement Sunday that operatives alongside the military, local vigilante and hunters are searching nearby forests for the victims. Officials say 32 people were kidnapped in Saturday's attack, but one escaped. State Information Commissioner Chris Osa Nehikari told local dailies that a suspect has been arrested and is helping the police in the search operation. The police said herders armed with AK-47 rifles opened fire at the Igweben train substation as passengers waited to board an evening train on Saturday. Several people were injured and railways officials have shut down all traffic at the station for the time being. The attack comes barely one month since the resumption of train services from Abuja to the northern city of Kaduna. Train service had been shut down since March of last year when armed men attacked a train and took away more than 60 hostages. All of those hostages have since been released. Security analyst Chidi Omeje says a repeat of the train attack shows authorities did not learn from past experience. It's actually shameful because I, one, had, one would have expected that after that Kaduna incident that these guys would take, you know, will sit down and, and make sure that there, there's a real facility. You know, don't forget that we're trying to, we're trying to um, uh, revitalize our rail, rail system in this country. And now you, you see this kind of attacks on it. So it's, it's a terrible thing. People will be naturally scared to even go close to anything these days. Nigeria has been battling Islamist militants in the northeast for more than 12 years. But in more recent years, violence has spread to other regions of the country. Security analyst Senator Irebu says authorities have not taken a big picture approach in addressing security issues. Most times, the response to these security issues is done in such a haphazard way, like in silos. If it is happening to Kaduna, uh, some neighboring uh, state feel that they are safe. It shows a government that is unprepared 
According to the Nigerian security tracker NST, more than 9,000 people were killed and 4,600 abducted across the country last year. Timothy Obiezu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. South African police are investigating allegations by the outgoing head of state-owned powder company ESCOM that he was poisoned. Andre de Reuter alleges someone put cyanide in his coffee a day after he tendered his resignation. De Reuter has been criticized for failing to end widespread graft in the company that fueled the worst blackouts in South Africa's history. Vicky Stark reports from Cape Town. Debt-ridden ESCOM says due to the police investigation, it cannot comment on Dorator's stating that someone tried to poison him at his Johannesburg office on December 13. The story broke over the weekend with Dorator telling energy analyst and editor of EE Business Intelligence, Chris Yelland, that after drinking the coffee, he became weak, dizzy, confused and started vomiting. Dorator went to a doctor and tests were conducted. South Africa's Minister of Public Enterprises, Praveen Gordon, says the alleged attempt on Dorator's life will be thoroughly investigated and those responsible will be charged. Monet Milan, the head of communications at Solidarity, a union with 6,000 members at ESCOM, believes the alleged poisoning was linked to Dorator's fight against corruption. All the indications at the moment are that he was in fact poisoned uh, based on the toxicology report. Uh, from our understanding, a normal cyanide level uh, for a human being would be around 15 milligrams per liter of blood, uh, whereas uh, Andre Dorator's was at over 40 milligrams per liter. Dorator's submitted his resignation shortly after Minerals and Energy Minister Gwede Mantashe criticized ESCOM's management, saying, quote, ESCOM, by not attending to load shedding, is actively agitating for the overthrow of the state, close quote. Milan says the union doesn't believe Mantasha's accusation because he says Dereta always put ESCOM first and did his best. Milan added that due to political interference in South Africa's state-owned enterprises, it's almost impossible for any CEO to conduct business independently. Look, it's terribly difficult to actually judge uh, the extent to which he was effective. There are certain things we can point to. Uh, we do believe that he did a relatively good job at uh, alleviating ESCOM's debt load. Uh, the fact of the matter is that uh, load shedding was significantly worse last year than ever before. We did have over 200 days of load shedding in 2022. Across the country, rolling power cuts known as load shedding were first implemented by ESCOM around 2008 due to demand outstripping supply. In 2022, South Africa experienced blackouts for up to 10 hours a day at times. Energy analysts blame corruption, crippling debt, lack of maintenance of aging coal power plants and the inability to procure new plants and renewable energy sources in a timely manner as reasons for the demise of the once world-class power utility. Meanwhile, the National Union of Metal Workers of South Africa has refused to comment on the poisoning investigation, referring instead to a statement issued in December. It said it is overjoyed by Dorator's resignation and called him the worst CEO in the history of ESCOM. Energy expert Ted Blom is also not a Dorator fan. In terms of delivering the, the, uh, the fix-up at ESCOM, uh, he's grossly underperformed. And he's actually leaving Eskim in a far worse situation than what he inherited. 
Blom also says he doesn't know anyone who would want to take the job at ESCOM. It certainly is not fixable by one or two people. If you're going to bring in a, a, a team to fix up ESCOM, it's going to have to be in the form of a task force. They're going to have to be independent and they're going to have to have a mandate uh, that is irrevocable for a period of time. Uh, you can't have chopping and changing every, every 18 months or every year like ESCOM has in the last 15 years. Duretza, who officially started as CEO in January 2020, is expected to leave ESCOM on March 31st. Vicky Stark for VOA News, Cape Town, South Africa. Senegal's president, Macky Sall, announced yesterday that a bus crash killed 40 people and injured dozens of others in the Kafrin region. He said the country would begin three days of mourning today and that he would hold an interministerial council to discuss safety measures. The Associated Press says the accident happened near the village of Nivi uh, in National Road Number 1 when a public bus punctured a tire and veered across the road, hitting a bus coming in the opposite direction. Meanwhile, Ugandan police report that a bus lost control and veered off the road near the border with Kenya, killing at least 20 people and injuring 49 Saturday. Sudan's ruling military has vowed the army will come under civilian authority as the two sides hammer out a final agreement on a two-year transitional government before elections. Michael Atit reports from Khartoum, Sudan. Three days of talks between military and civilian leaders continued Monday with the aim of reaching a final deal on governing during a two-year transition to elections. The spokesman for the civilian side, Khalid Omar Yusuf, addressed the media Monday at a press conference in Khartoum, broadcast by the state-run Sudan News Agency. He says this is an opportunity for all Sudanese to engage and cooperate with the regional and international community to achieve the high national interest of the country. At a launch of the final phase of the political process Sunday, Sudan's Army Chief General Abdul Fattah al-Burhan repeated the military's vow to place itself under a civilian government. His speech was also broadcast by Sudan's state news agency. He says it is the military's conviction that we will soon see a true civilian government established in Sudan that will fulfill the aspirations and ambitions of the Sudanese people towards a free, just and peaceful state. The army chief gave no details on when the military will step aside, but said it would keep its word to leave politics. He also applauded efforts by regional and international partners to help end Sudan's political crisis. Al-Burhan overthrew a transitional civilian government led by former Prime Minister Abdul Hamdok in October 2021, citing lack of attention to alleged threats. The coup came just weeks before the military was to hand power to civilian authorities, sparking international condemnation and withdrawal of foreign aid. Sudan's pro-democracy groups have staged near-weekly protests ever since, demanding the military step down. Security forces have frequently clashed with the protesters, leaving scores dead, almost all of them protesters. 
the African Union, the Intergovernmental Authority on Development, and the UN, known as the Trilateral Mechanism, have been mediating in Sudan with the aim of breaking the deadlock. The talks are expected to include reforming Sudan's security forces. Michael Latid for VOA News, Khartoum, Sudan. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Please note we have moved our programs from voanews.com to voaafrica.com. There you'll find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. Find us on voaafrica.com. China's new foreign minister is starting a week-long trip to Africa today. The Associated Press says Qin Gang, who was appointed on December 30th, will go to Ethiopia, Gabon, Angola, Benin, and Egypt. China's uh, new foreign minister says that while he is in Egypt, he will also meet with the Secretary General of the Arab League. The news service notes that China has sent its new foreign ministers first to Africa for more than three decades. Foreign Ministry spokesperson Wang Wenbin says the practice shows that China attaches great importance to the traditional friendship with Africa and the development of China-Africa relations. China has major investments in infrastructure and mining projects on the continent. Qin was previously the ambassador to the United States. Republican Kevin McCarthy was finally elected as Speaker of the House of Representatives following a grueling battle over several days to secure votes. I talked to Catherine Gibson, VOA's Capitol Hill correspondent, to brief us more on the matter. Welcome to African News Tonight, Catherine. Good to be with you. So, how did uh, Mr. McCarthy finally accomplish his goal after struggling, what, 15 ballots? 15 rounds, that's right. And, you know, that 14th round, the final one where he thought he had enough votes, but at the very last moment, Florida Republican Matt Gates turned his vote to a present vote, which, in the very complicated mass of the Speaker of the House vote, meant that Kevin McCarthy did not have the 218, the majority needed, to get that speakership. So we saw some very dramatic scenes on the House floor. You know, apart from January 6, 2021, the attack on the U.S. Capitol, some of the most dramatic scenes I've ever seen in the U.S. Congress, when you actually saw the deal-making taking place, Kevin McCarthy walking up to Matt Gates telling him, you know, I will give you this and this and this in return for your vote. You saw very frustrated Republicans almost coming to blows on the House floor while Democrats looked on in amusement. It was quite a scene to see the inner workings of the U.S. government right out for display. Who are the holdouts? Um, uh, Like, are they these uh, uh, very hardline conservatives? They certainly are. Most of them are part of something called the House Freedom Caucus, which has been really a problem for Republican leadership over the past six to seven years since John Boehner and Paul Ryan were in leadership positions. They really are standing their ground on firm conservative values. 
They argue that the U.S. government has gotten too big, too out of control, and that quite simply a lot of the laws that are being passed in the U.S. House of Representatives are just being rubber stamped, that there's not any real debate or discussion about a lot of the spending, a lot of the priorities that end up getting passed. So they do have an argument in terms of saying, look, American democracy has gotten very far away from its roots. And our mission is to bring it back and have people have an informed discussion about where our money is going, where our priorities lie. So, uh, Catherine, just uh, uh, give us a, a sample of what maybe like what the concessions were and could some of the concessions Mr. McCarthy made uh, come back to bite him? Oh, most certainly. You know, all this proved is that the conservative House Freedom Caucus has power over Kevin McCarthy, and we're going to be seeing a whole new round of battles Monday night in Washington, D.C., when they try to pass the rules package, which really sounds very dull, but actually is incredibly important because those are the rules that govern how the U.S. House of Representatives functions for the next two years. There is a lot of power to be had in deciding what bills come up to the House floor, how they come up to the House floor, what committees do and when. All of that is going to be out for display Monday night. And I expect to see the Conservative Freedom Caucus really fighting Kevin McCarthy on this one. It'll also tell us what deals Kevin McCarthy made to get those votes so that he could become speaker. So we are far from over here in Washington. VOA Capital here correspondent Catherine Gibson. Thank you for your input. Cheers greeted 46 Ivory Coast soldiers as they arrived home after being held in Mali for six months. The military junta in Bamako called them mercenaries and arrested them in July as they landed in the capital to assist UN peacekeepers. The government said the men were hired by the private company Sahelian Aviation Services. The Associated Press says they were pardoned last week after they had been sentenced to 20 years in prison for undermining state security. Three other defendants, or women, were released in September. Mali's government spokesman said the decision to pardon the troops demonstrated the administration's commitment to peace, dialogue, pan-Africanism, and the preservation of fraternal relations with regional countries, in particular Ivory Coast. Mali has been fighting an Islamic insurgency for 10 years. Ivory Coast and several other countries have decided to withdraw from Mali after the government decided to collaborate with Russian-backed mercenaries of the Wagner Group. While Algeria conducted a counter-terrorism military exercise in November with Russia, President Abdelmajid Taboun urged Mali's military council to drop the services of the Russian private military firm Wagner Group. Instead, he said Mali should invest in the economy while restoring peace should pass through Algeria. William Lawrence, professor of international relations at the American University in Washington, explained the Algerian position to VOA senior analyst Mohamed El-Shanawi. 
it's very, very significant on many levels. Um, first of all, it's rooted in that same Algerian sovereignism and sort of an ironic or complex sovereignism that says the West and the international community should and anyone else should not interfere in African issues, but Algeria should. And so that's sort of complicated. There's also a really complicated relationship of that issue to the Russian interventions in Africa, because Algeria has a strong relationship with Russia and occasionally works with Russia, including in helping the Wagner group get to Mali in the first place because they had to fly over Algeria. But on the other hand, Algeria is completely opposed to the Russians having these long-standing relationships because of its sovereignist position. And when Lavrov visited Algeria many months ago and they met about Ukraine, the readouts were really interesting because Lavrov was saying he respected the Algerian position, not that he agreed with it. And the Algerian position was basically however much we agree with Russia's opposition or balancing of the West, we don't agree that Ukraine should be sacrificed over this issue. Again, it's a complicated application of its own sovereignist principles. Algeria is also making messages to Mali and to Africa, saying even though Russia and China often position themselves as anti-imperialist powers, as they did during the Cold War and since the Cold War, and you'll often hear Africans sort of praising Russian and Chinese positions as pro-global South or anti-Western imperialism, you know, Algeria is suggesting that Russia and China can be imperialistic too, that they can be interventionist too. He's also right that investment in the economy is a huge part of the Malian solution, but he doesn't get into the governance issues, which is very much connected to the economic issues that haven't been solved either by Malian governments or by their supporters, whether Russian or otherwise, or by the Algerian mediations. So to say that restoring peace in Mali should only pass through Algeria isn't entirely true because what the Algerian have shown they're good at doing is doing the mediations, but not good at the follow through on the mediations. And that's why the French put troops in. That's why the other countries that help Mali have to go in to help implement the Algerian mediated agreements. Um, Algeria cannot do it on its own. How could that call against Wagner Group impact Algerian close relations with Russia? This goes back to the Libya issue, which Wagner right now is, has transferred a bunch of their troops back to Ukraine and they're fighting the most vicious battle on the front lines in the Ukrainian conflict. But those were troops in part transferred out of Libya, where a sort of skeletal version of those troops are, are holding the line in Libya. And again, Algeria is opposed to the Wagner Group doing that and was not only opposed to the Western intervention in Libya in 2011, but is increasingly opposed to the Russian intervention, not only in Libya and not only in Mali, but anywhere in Africa. I think Wagner has now at various times put troops on the ground in as many as 16 African countries. The Wagner troops often act as Praetorian guards, protecting presidents and pushtists from popular actions against their power grabs. And that's not exactly how the Russians sell it as stabilizing forces. Even worse, there are often mineral for Wagner mercenary swaps in which a country gives up some of its rights to its mineral wealth in exchange for these Russian mercenaries protecting their regimes, which is not really a way to develop the African continent either. So not only is Algeria sort of in a philosophically complicated position right now and a little bit of a shifting of its position a little more towards Ukraine, but Algeria's whole philosophy is called into question now because you can't only oppose Western intervention 
interventionism without understanding that the Chinese and Russian replacements are generally not improvements. And that in the end, Africa helping itself doesn't mean kicking all the foreigners out, nor does it mean welcoming all the foreigners in to do what they want. It means cooperating internationally with all the international countries in a way that improves the African space and improves African governance rather than making it worse, which is what the Russians are doing. That was William Lawrence, Professor of International Relations at the American University in Washington, speaking with VOA Senior Analyst Mohammed El-Shanawi. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Nicole Beckford, and our engineer, Cornelius Tanner, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.